Welcome to Rap Stories, a show where I get the background on some of my favorite albums of all time by the artists who made them. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr., and today I'm joined by underground king Bun B to discuss UGK's debut album, Too Hard to Swallow. Bun B and Pimp C, the group known as UGK, taught me how to love. Let me explain. I was 21 years old when Pimp C passed away in 2007. I was a young man trying to figure out the world and I was devastated by the death of one of my favorite rappers and voices of the South. I remember soon after listening to an interview with Bun B. He was asked what was the last thing he said to Pimp C and his answer changed my life. He said the last thing he told Pimp C was, I love you. Why? Because that's what he would tell his brother at the end of every conversation. Before then, I'd never considered telling other men who weren't my dad that I loved him. But after hearing Bun B's interview, I texted my homies how much they meant to me and said, yes, I do love you. And I haven't stopped telling them since. The bond between Bun B and Pimp C has taught me so much about brotherhood, partnership and collaboration and that musical bond between these two legends shaped their debut album 1992's too hard to swallow the album is two teenagers from port arthur texas with their backs against the wall creating a singular unabashedly southern album tailor-made for old school cadillacs and impalas and setting the path for so much of what southern hip-hop will become to listen to too hard to swallow is to hear two brothers figuring out their sound their voices and embracing their talent. The album feels like Bun B and Pimp C against the world and winning. To be raised in the South is to love UGK and to hear Too Hard to Swallow is to see where the legacy began. It's a historic piece of hip hop lore and for that alone, the foundation for one of the greatest rap groups of all time. And here to discuss Too Hard to Swallow is one of the godfathers of Southern rap, an honorable OG, and currently the owner of Trill Burgers, the best burgers in America, Bun B. Welcome to Rap Stories. Thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. Let's get right into it, man. Too Hard to Swallow. There's so much to talk about. One thing that stuck out to me was the hook on I'm So Bad. And for those of you watching and listening, if you don't know what I'm talking about, pause this podcast, go listen, and come right back. The hook is wild. It's just like a song that I feel like only Pimp C can make. Tell me what happened in your reaction to when you first heard it. This is a very strange point to start. This is a very <laughs> entry point to this conversation, I will say. Kudos to you for that one. Apparently, if I remember this right, he had watched a porn. And in the porn, I guess the dude did that. And <laughs> no, he didn't say he, he did like, it. I blew his mind because it wasn't like some shit he was expecting to happen in the movie. You know what I'm saying? And then he came back like, man, that's the wildest shit I ever seen in my life. And we were young. We were big on like just making wild, crazy records. You know mm. what I'm saying? But on this one, I was like, you might be on your own without <laughs> You know what I'm saying? But, you know, just, you know, rap is very big on bragging and that type of shit. And you know, without trying to get grabbed or whatever, I would imagine this was about him professing his male prowess to a certain extent. You know, mm, what I'm right? Not sure how comfortable I feel talking about <laughs> <laughs> this whole conversation is very pause worthy, right? But yeah, that's kind of what that was on, man. We were just young dudes, wild, like testing the limits, mm -hmm. you know, so to speak. I don't think he meant it literally. I haven't heard it in years. I, but I could hear the music like yesterday. But that was just him, you know, being very silly. Pimp had a very, very silly sense of humor. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot of laughing, him laughing mm -hmm. on that song, I think, at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, no, that was just, you know, young, wild dudes just, you know, saying fuck it, kind of just saying whatever. UGK has been like OGs seemingly for my entire life. And so like to listen to an album where y'all are young kids, you know, figuring this out is really interesting to go back and listen to. So I, I want to know what 19, 20 year old Bun B and Pimp C were like. At that particular time, Pimp was, Pimp was the introvert. I was mm -hmm. the extrovert. Mm -hmm. So Pimp was really at home making beats, doing music, kind of locking into that. I was more out in the streets 
doing wild shit. We were very reckless. We were very irresponsible. I could definitely say that. You know, me, myself, you know, this. these were the years where I was smoking a lot of what we call fryer amp, which would be, you know, embalming fluid, angel dust, I think. Mm. Goes by a bunch of different names, which was a very terrible decision to make on my mm. part. You know what I'm saying? But I, again, this was not the Bumby that you see nowadays, very calm, reserved. This was very young, wild, reckless, irresponsible. But Beach is out here being very careless, to mm. be quite honest. You know what I'm saying? I'm very blessed to still actually be alive because some of this shit I did back then, I was throwing a lot of rocks at the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And we were trying to transition fully into this music game and out of the streets. But that transition was not as simple and as quick as we thought it would be. You know what I'm saying? Contractual issues. Um, problems with the record company, which would start to come up later on, um, really only made that worse. We were all young, first of all, not just Pimp and myself, but the owners of the record company, Russell Washington and Steve, and shout out to Steve. And this whole story of UGK, particularly the beginning of UGK, Steve, and uh, I, I, God forgive me because I can't remember his last name. It's been a very long time. But Steve was part of helping build this. He was part of the ownership at the time. You know, this group would not have happened if Russell and Steve weren't working together to make this happen. Um, as well as as their women, you know, their women were very heavily involved with the process, Zena at the time, and a uh, woman who was Steve's um, girl at the time. They were very instrumental in giving us like real world ears, Sometimes we were a little too inside and too close to it to get the reaction of whether or not like people would like it in the club and that mm-hmm. type of, would a woman want to dance to that. You know, they gave us that kind of direction, which is crazy because my wife now does that for me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. make sure, you know, that the music is relatable. And I just want to say that because I, I don't think those people collectively get enough credit. I think typically you hear my name, you hear Chad's name, you hear Russell's name, but there were a lot of people were instrumental in that early day but yeah i'm saying all that to say we were very young wow we didn't really know what we were doing and we were just out here on some fucking shit if it happens it happens and we were very blessed because it actually did happen and the music we made actually connected with people not what, maybe at that particular song though right <laughs> what was what was the thing that turned your life around and sort of got you even off of that type of vice I think, you know, this probably a couple of years later, as I started to really understand how far the music was going, the kind of impact that we were making in the industry and the connection we were having with people, not to mention personal responsibilities coming into play, having a family, you know what I'm saying, a woman and children um, counting on me. That changed a lot of shit in my mm-hmm. life, you know what I'm saying? And that's when I started to kind of pull back and, you know, try to think things through a lot more. Um, at the same time, um, not saying that Pimp was, was trying to not be responsible, but uh, which he was, he was always a good father to his children. But he was starting to realize who he was in this world. Mm-hmm. And this is getting closer to like riding dirty. You know right. what I'm mm-hmm. saying? What I'm talking about now. He wanted to go out and like actually really feel what it was like being Pimp C. And I'll be very honest. Um, the year we made Riding Dirty, it was a very good year to go out mm-hmm. and be Pimp C. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just UGK, a rap group. I had ghostwritten for people around that time. He was doing beats for people and, and he was singing a lot more hooks at the time. You know what I'm saying? So we were growing not just collectively as UGK, but also individually as artists. And um, yeah, no, he took full advantage of being Pimp C um, around that time, and rightfully so, because he earned the right to be who he was. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Why not enjoy that shit? How did you get connected with Steve and Russell and the women there? And how did they move from just signing you guys to actually saying, we're going to put this album out? Well, they had that idea to do that independently, right? Mm -hmm. And so there were things we had to do in order to raise the type of money that we felt it would take to pay for the studio time and get this thing printed and pressed up. You know, printing and pressing an independent record in 1992 was not as simple and easy a process as it is right now. You know, you have to create the artwork and typically you would have to get that pressed 
separately. You know what I'm saying? So I went out and found some people and, you know, I was like, hey, well, we need to print something. Um, and they were like, what, what, a cassette cover? And they were like, well, we don't do that here. Just bring us the dimensions. So mm-hmm. we went and got the actual dimensions. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Zikiwe, took our pictures, you know, came down to Port Arthur, took the pictures, mm-hmm. and we just kind of gave them the pictures and put this here, put that there, wrote this kind of shit out, and it just kind of happened. And so we went to place called um, Southwest Wholesale, which is a record distribution company, which Russell had a relationship with because he was a record store owner. So he presented this, you know, product to them. They sold it to record stores and a couple of other one stops and local distributors in Texas and Louisiana picked it up. And um, what happened was when it released independently, we dropped the same weekend or same week as Crisscross and Jump. Mm-hmm. the number one song in the country and the number one album in the country but in texas in certain markets we were either beating them or like a very close second and so it got the attention of a lot of people like who who is this group that's selling all these records up against this the biggest record in the country that started off a bidding war and because we didn't really understand how that stuff went you know wednesday you know warlock records is calling and fourth and broadway is calling and then Thursday, you know, um, Select Records is calling, and Friday, other different companies are calling, and then Saturday, nobody's calling, Mm. right? And then Sunday, nobody's calling, and we started wondering whether or not we had overplayed our hand, you know, like maybe we should have signed something. We got nervous, because again, we're very new. We, We have no idea what we're doing. We don't know anybody to give us any direction. So we were like, fuck it, whoever called, next motherfucker to call, we're going to sign. And then Monday morning, the first person to call was Jive Records. Now, it never dawned on us in the moment that it was the weekend. The record companies are closed. And that's why nobody called on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But that's just the kind of mistake that we we made. But, you know, sometimes these things are meant to happen, you know. Um, and that's how UTK and Big Time Records ended up with that deal of going over to Jive Records. What would you say would be the defining factor or reason that you guys were able to compete with the monster hit and album like crisscross i think because we were talking in a way that people actually talked outside at the time we were talking about things that i think people were actually talking about the songs were very familiar whether it was the summer breeze sample that we were rapping over or the rubis and shaka khan tell me something good chorus in the song these are very well-known songs in the community that we came from and the kind of people that we were speaking to, you know, I think we talked with confidence, you know what I'm saying? So it really sounded like we knew what we were talking about with people that goes a long way sometimes. And, um, we were just different. We were an alternative at the time. And, and keep in mind in the early nineties, rap music was still very hard to come by. Like mm-hmm. if you wanted to hear new music, it wasn't always playing on the radio every day. Like it is now, you know, it wasn't always, easily available you had to go out and find a lot of music and and because of that we ended up in a lot of record pools which is how djs around america used to get records and not they didn't get emailed this shit to each other back then you had to literally subscribe to a group and pay a certain amount of money for membership per year and they would send you periodically records i think once a month you would get a bunch of 12 bench records mm-hmm. and record companies would pay record pools to put those records into distribution back then we ended up on a lot of college dj playlists and word of mouth started going on as people from where we were from at port arthur and people from texas started to go to other universities they would take the music with them i remember when i met cameron cameron went to junior college on a basketball scholarship in texas at a younger age and that's how he heard ugk you know because he everybody was playing it from texas and then he took that shit back to New York with him, you know, because there wasn't a lot of money spent by our record company for promotion and marketing outside of our immediate area because they didn't think people would really understand it or want to fuck with it anyway. And you talk about those samples, man, like a bunch of groundbreaking things in this album. One is just the way that these samples appear on the album. Talk about the development and choosing of those samples and how they were utilized in this album. Well, I mean, obviously all the musical decisions for UGK came from Pimp C, you know what I'm saying? Like, so as far as, you know, the decision to sample from this artist or that artist, 
those ideas and decisions came from Pimp C. But this was all about having us be as well-rounded as possible, man, being as honest as possible. Like the whole idea of Use Me Up was, this was a very young Pimp C um, who was still actually in a relationship with somebody, still willing to, I guess, you know, trick off money, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you was it's like, I'll spend whatever it is on you. You know what I'm saying? So this was just us trying to find the best way to tell either the stories we were going through or the things we were seeing and being, I guess, being as, I don't want to say appreciated, but being as understood as possible. You know, we were from a very small town. We talk different. We use a lot of different terminology. So we had to make sure that whatever we were saying, that we could give enough perspective so that people could kind of decipher what the fuck we was talking about. But, you know, even in the course of that, you know, the deeper thing, about the samples we we used was learning about the music industry, right? And this was in the time where, you know, record companies were getting very, very nervous and cautious about putting out rap music with samples. People were getting sued for usage at the time. I'll tell you a story. When we did Use Me Up, Use Me Up was a song where we had to get clearance from the artist in order to use the record, right? So the record company reached out to Bill Withers for the sample. Bill Withers is who wrote and produced the song, Use Me Up. And Bill Withers said, um, I'll clear it, but let me talk to the group. I want to talk to the group. So we're sitting around the house, and one day Bill Withers calls us. You <laughs> wow. know? And Bill Withers is like, yeah, well, let me explain something to you guys. Do you guys own your publishing? And we were like, no, I think we sold it for like 50000 or whatever. He's like, as soon as you get in a position, like buy your publishing back. He says, because, you know, and this is with all due respect, because we we have a better relationship now. But he was like, the guy that's running your record company is the nephew of the guy that ran my record company. So the same way his uncle took my publishing, he taught him how to take your publishing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So as soon as you can, you guys can get in the position to get your publishing back, do that, because that's going to be what sustains you for years to come. And there was other different advice, you know, just about stay ahead of what you're getting recouped for and how much money you're spending and what you allowed them to spend and all the different stuff that we actually never really knew anything about. And the only reason we got that kind of education was because he saw fit enough to make a record that we had to go through for sampling. And because of that, we got like a firsthand education about what was really important about the music that we're sampling and creating. And the other thing that we learned from that is to try to not sample as much and find ways to go around because everybody does a clear every sample, mm. right? I remember when we did Cocaine in the Back of the Ride, the original version independently had a Bob Marley sample. When we tried to get it cleared for the album, Rita Marley declined it because mm. Rita Marley said Bob was not cool with cocaine. Mm. Right. If y'all want to call it weed in the back of the ride, y'all can do that and I'll clear it all day. Right. But she was like, we can't associate Bob's music with cocaine because Bob wouldn't have wanted that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So there was a lot of things we learned just to buy the music we were sampling at the time. I think we learned more about the business of music. You know what I'm saying? What what was uh, your reactions to some of these sample clearance issues? I mean, you fall in love with the song, they're popular, and then you have to sort of overhaul the song to make something totally different with a different sample. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I remember, this isn't really our story, but I remember the Odd Squad side of Rabelai had a song called Your Pussy's Like Dope, and that sample didn't clear, and they reworked it and reproduced it, and it was still a big record for people that didn't know. But for those of us that had heard the original version, it never really compared. Mm. You know what I'm saying? We went through that as well. There were records on this album that the record company reproduced. You know what I'm saying? Because samples didn't clear. Our paperwork did not dictate that they had to go to us to get the records reproduced if the samples didn't clear. That wasn't anything we thought we would need to put in the contract. But I mean, literally, when we got the album, there were a couple of songs on there like, I think one nine hundred Bun B, right? I think was a song that they reproduced as a record company. That was actually a song that I had produced. We learned a lot just about the mechanics of the music industry and how these things work. Again, I don't even think it was about the music, learning anything really about the music other than 
we need to know more about the business of music. You know what I'm saying? And then after that, we learned, you know, how to do interpolations of records as opposed to directly sampling the records. And that was a beautiful thing because that led to Pimp C actually being able to exercise his music knowledge and the transition from just really showing people he can make beats to showing people that he was a real producer. You mentioned the songs that you produce, and I think people would be surprised if they see Bun B production credits on something like this. Talk about young Bun B as a producer. Again, Pimp C was a producer. I made a couple of beats. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? I made a couple of beats. I would never go as far as to try to say that I was actually a producer. Basically, for me, it was about finding the right kind of sample. Like, was it jocking my style with Infinity? You know what I'm saying? That's a song that I produced. And that's just me picking a record that I know most of my contemporaries would know. Isley Brothers between the sheets, right? You'll see a pattern <laughs> with, with Isley Brothers and UTK as the career goes on. But yeah, that was just about me finding a beat. Um, I had no idea how to sample, go to the studio. Hey, let's do this. Give the beat to the engineer. He puts it into the machine. He figures out a little bit. We, you know, program some little bullshit drums under it. I rap on top of it. Boom, we got a record, you know? I remember the record company owner, Russell and Chad, were getting into it at the time. They had some personal shit going on. And I was just really making beats and doing songs to not waste studio time because studio time was one, super hard to book and two, super expensive. So once you had that session, you had, somebody had to go and do something. So I was in there just trying to make music to just keep the shit going until Russell and Chad figure out what the fuck they going to do. And then the real producer could come back and start getting the album and shit done again. But yeah, you know, back then, yeah, if you look deep enough, there's a couple of production credits, but nothing for me to, um, you know, to brag on. At what point in the album process do you learn that they are repurposing the samples, that these original songs that you have made are not going to sound like y'all had made it? I didn't realize it had happened until they sent us copies of the album. Wow. We, took the plastic off of it and listened to it. And that's when we realized, hold up, man. It is literally the first song is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. Cocaine in the Back of the Ride. That's not MC's beat. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? They took elements out of it and replaced it, the sample. And so from that beginning, we were just kind of like outdone. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't even get excited about this being out because this ain't us. This shit ain't jamming. You know what I'm saying? This ain't. You know, thank God that people actually still connected with us based on the few true UGK records that made it on the project, you know, the pocket full of stones and stuff like that. But I mean, it was very rough as young artists realizing how much control we didn't have. You know, from that point on, again, like I said, stop being about the music, started being about trying to educate yourself about the business and start to put ourselves in a position of leverage, because at that point we really had none. Bill Withers calls you, tells you, asks you if you own your pubs. Did you ever get it? Yes, we did get it back before Pam passed away. Okay. We did get full ownership of our publishing back. You know what I'm saying? So that was one of the things that we fought for in our career for many years. You know what I'm saying? And um, we didn't really get it back until I think right when Pimp came home. You know mm. what I'm saying? We were in a position of getting the publishing back and then we signed a licensing deal into existence that now gets passed on to the estate. And so because of the fact that we took advantage of the opportunity to sign off on the last two UGK albums as opposed to just one, that's why we were able to put the second album, the posthumous album out so quickly. And a lot of the business was easy to transact because he had already signed off on a lot of different things before he passed away. When was the last time you listened to Too Hard to Swallow? It's been a long time. I am not the kind of person that really sits back and listens to my music and keep in mind I perform this stuff you know almost weekly to a mm -hmm. certain and I just did a show this weekend I performed Pocket Full of Stones you know what I'm saying I mm -hmm. perform it all the time but performing music and listening to music are two different things it's two different dynamics I think for people because when I sing the music it's not for me it's not for my consumption it's for the crowd the listener the audience it's for their consumption whenever I hear my music typically I'm caught off guard you know, I might just come on randomly, you know, do my Apple phone cutting on some shit. I have a radio show, the two Tro show on Rock the Bells. And so my car radio is typically on Sirius on channel 43 
So some old stuff may come up. I may pull up somewhere in the hood and somebody might randomly be driving by playing that shit or at the car wash or whatever. But it's always, honestly, it's kind of refreshing to know mm. that music is something that, you know, so many years later with so many millions of rap songs available to people that the music I created over 30 years ago is still in some people's lives more favorable than music that's being made right now. Do you remember where you were the day the album came out? We were probably in PA, you know what I'm saying? I would probably guess that those albums probably went to um, Wes's house, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, Pimp's mom's house from Jive. But again, there was so much complication on the independent side. We were going through things with Russell at the time from a larger scale with, you know, not really understanding, you know, what our obligations were and what really the dynamics of our record deal was because there was issues with the lawyer that we had on our side having been a former employee of theirs. And, you know, there was a lot of favoritism towards them in the contractual agreement, which we would have to fight over for the remainder of our tenure with that record company all the way up until the record company literally dissolved. And there's still, we're still like in the red, you Mm. know, based off of that contract. Um, but there's no one to negotiate terms with now. Right, right. You know, it just kind of falls into default. But we will get grandfathered in. Um, the rights will revert. Um, the only reason they haven't reverted, you know, several of them are falling into that 25-year period, is because we took money after the year 2000. Mm. In 2007, UGK received the check from Sony. So I think our deal goes still seven years after the 25 year window. So I think in maybe two or three years, the rights will revert back Um, because being a Sony records, everyone signed before 2000 has their debt cleared, but ours can't be cleared because we took money. So Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. complicates the ownership right reversal as well, as well as clearing the balance, but it would be a perfect time for the rights to revert because we will not owe them anymore and we will have full ownership of those things. And so any way we choose to try to repackage that stuff or represent it and reissue it, that will that will benefit us. And of course, obviously, you have the co-writers and on, on the music as well. I think a lot of people think you drop an album and the next day you in a mansion and everything is good. What was your life like, you know, in the week, couple weeks following this album? Where were you living? What does it, no what does it look like for you? Nothing, nothing changed. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Nothing changed at all. I remember having to try to move back on with my mom. That shit did not work. I was there for about a week. Um, <laughs> that shit didn't work. I was an adult doing adult things. They found my weed. They were like, can't smoke in here. I'm like, I shouldn't be here. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm too grown to be having weed in my mama's house. I got to get the fuck out of here. You know, and that came with making some decisions and some choices um, in terms of how I chose to live and survive at the time. For many, many years, man, in our career, we had to be self-reliant and self-sustained in order for us to, you know, maintain a certain quality of life because we didn't really get those kind of benefits from our record deal, you know? So if we weren't doing shows, we had to side hustle, you know, Mm -hmm. we had to figure that shit out and I won't really go into it, but I mean, I did, you know, I mean, I had jobs, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I worked for a good friend of mine, gave me a job, shout out to Bo, Robert Bohannon, he's no longer with us as well. And so, yeah, man, we did what we had to do. You know, and eventually the music and everything kind of caught up and we were able to, to build like a fully sustained, not just lifestyle, but also business structure for us to take care of our families and still progress through the music industry to get to where we eventually got to. What were some of the Bun B 9 to 5s? I worked at the record store that Russell Washington owned. Big Time Records was a record store primarily in, in King's Flea Market. So I worked there. And then I was like a delivery driver for a soul food restaurant. You know what I'm saying? My, my guy at Boa's Place, RBJ's in Port Arthur. And as far as legitimate jobs, that was it until I started yeah. teaching at Rice University. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, That's not a bad little resume. We had to do a couple of things, you know, in a couple mm-hmm. of places. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to meet a man about a dog. You know, sometimes right. I had my cat, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> these, these things happen, you know, and I don't look back at it like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. And I really can't ask those kind of questions right now and make those kind of choices because right or wrong, whatever it was I did or experienced got me to where I'm at right now in life. And outside of not having Pimp C personally, physically here, 
to be a part of it. I mean, I can't really complain about what God has given me, you know, turning 50 this year, hip hop is turning 50 this year. You know what I'm saying? You know, life is coming full circle for me, having the burgers, all of these great things in life coming for me. There is, of course, the moments of survivor's remorse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, just being very honest and human about it, you know? I lost a lot of good friends around the way. I lost, you know, some of my best friends. Some would say one of my closest friends. You Sometimes you stop and, you know, you look at your life and you wonder, why am I here? Mm-hmm. You know, but, you, you know, once you start asking those questions, you go down a different path. And, you know, I got people that are counting on me and people that are dependent on me, um, not just in my house, right, but um, out in the world. You know, I know that the world, the words and the energy that I put out have actually literally affected people and changed people's lives. I mean, your personal story included, you know what I'm saying? And my mind is still blown when people say things like that. I hear Mm -hmm. that now as I'm older and people that have been around for, you know, the longevity of this UGK movement's tenure culturally in hip hop can look back now in retrospect and actually tie specific life moments and decisions that it worked out for the positive to words that I put out into this world. As we got to riding dirty and the music started to go further and further and we started to reach more people and then also got to react and interact with more people, right? We started to realize how seriously people were taking what we said. And then you could start to see a shift of, you know, being honest about spirituality, being honest about relationships and, you know, being very transparent about who you are. So you never have to lie about that type of thing or make excuses for lies that were told, you know? So we just kind of walked it like we, you know, talked it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people saw that and connected with that. I'm interested in, I mean, you guys are two men, tough men. When did you start telling each other as, as brothers that I, I love you? I think there are moments that Pimp and I shared that we went through life um, that other people really wouldn't understand, mm-hmm. right? And some of them are musical, some of them are personal and Typically, one impacts the other, right? The music starting to impact the personal life. Our personal life started to impact our musical career, right? Mm -hmm. And we weren't always in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. So there would be times where I would be deep down in the dark and Pimp would have to pull me back up and keep me going and vice versa, you know? And you get to a point in your life where after you're having been through things before, and you know, I had older brothers, but because my parents divorced, there was a part of my life where I didn't really bond and connect with them in that way. Mm-hmm. Pimp was an only child. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and he had a half sister to be fair, but and a half brother, but grew up in the house alone. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the house alone. And so we did have a very strong bond with each other to where, you know, shit, I called him in tears. He called me in tears. We shared many tears together, you know, and it became more of a brotherhood than a friendship. And we had lost people collectively, individually in life. And we treasured the fact that we still had each other. You know, we had been through some very, let's just say precarious moments in this game, trying to make it in this world and came out better for it. Sometimes came out worse for it the other times, but we were still like together. There was a lot of shit that Pimp did and Pimp said, and I didn't really agree with how he went about it. But that was something for us to discuss in private, right? I never, you know, said whether or not I agree with Pimp or disagree with Pimp, right? Whatever he said, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? But how do you feel about that? Whatever he said, even if I don't agree with it, we still, I'm still going to ride with him on it. That's not going to change. And so, yeah, as we, you know, went through more shit, experienced more things, like that was something that, you know, we were very easy about vocalizing, you know what I'm saying? And it never, I can't remember it just being a day where we just say, Hey man, you know, let's make sure we say we love you. It just became something that happened. And I think I don't remember specifically any of the other times, um, but I distinctly remember the last time, you know, and I, he said, all right, I'm going to talk to you later. I said, all right, Chad, I love you, but I love you too. And that was literally the last time, I talked to him. We had worked out a lot of things. We were not in the same place. We were not seeing things eye to eye at the time. He was making a lot of decisions I didn't agree with. You know what I'm saying? Um, But he was welcome to do it. I just couldn't take that walk with him in that way. 
but we had talked these things through and aired out all our differences. He said what he said. I said what I said. We had found common ground to come back on. And then we, you know, told each other we loved each other. So at least I did get closure. You know what I'm saying? I know a lot of people didn't necessarily get that closure based on where they stood. And, you know, at that time, you know, this thing happened so, so quickly. And just, I mean, you know, who would have known that this would have happened? Obviously, many people, myself included, would have said more, you know, but this is kind of how life works. I'm just blessed that I was able to get some sort of closure with my brother and let that be the last thing we told each other. You know, that's a very, a very fitting close to our relationship. That's where I am today. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. That's I, I, a question uh, I've been dying to ask you since 2007 when I first heard you say that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm going to get back to Too Hard to Swallow. Talk to me a little bit about Too Hard to Swallow as a trap album. I mean, well, obviously, you know, trap is the term that's used now. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was a, a, a period of dominance where this particular type of music was being um, created in Atlanta. And crazy mm-hmm. numbers with uh, amazing efficiency. We, you know, coming up looking at the Ghetto Boys, and, you know, the NWAs of the world. But even like the Tough Crew mm. back in the day, you know, the Juice Crew, there was a lot of different inspiration for UGK. But it was really, when you looked at it, it was really about people trying to vocalize what was happening around them and paint the picture for people who weren't where they were from. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we were doing in that moment. But at the same time, you know, we were listening to this shit, right? You know, many people may not know this, but like, the, I think it might have been the first Click album mm. on the West Coast, you know, from the Bay Area. And I remember they had a song called The Drought Season. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And we were like, that's not even some shit people really know about. Like, it's a drought right now. Can't mm. nobody get no work. You know what I'm saying? It's hot. And we were like, okay, see, now, we, now I know we're not tripping. Because mm. they way over there in the Bay. Right. And they talking about how they getting down just like we getting down. We had seen New Jack City at this point. You know what I'm saying? We understood, you know, ghetto boys, the world is a ghetto. You know what I'm saying? This is what's immediately going around is, yeah, maybe once we get some money and go somewhere, and get some bread and get to moving around, maybe we might see some different shit and have a different worldview. But for our immediate area, the media people that we deal with, this is what's happening right now. This shit, selling this shit. It's, it's crazy right now. It's, that's what's really doing it. And boys is making some real money. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, now, obviously, there are people who are making a conscious effort to try to insert themselves into that world and with no proximity and no real true entry point mm-hmm. into it. They're just really good at making music and putting words together. And that's cool. I don't knock nobody. I would prefer you not go out and sell drugs. Mm-hmm. But I would also prefer you not misrepresent yourself either. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, did we sell every key we said we sold? No, of course not. You know what I'm saying? Do I, did I do some things I'm probably not proud of? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to incriminate myself out here, but <laughs> I did do a considerable amount of what, you know, we, we talked about. I'm not mm-hmm. saying I was big beach or nobody like that, but I touched some things. I got rid of some things and, and that's really, you know, but we had enough of an entry point and a much enough of a proximity to what was going on to be able to speak on these things in a way that people who were in that world mm-hmm. could tell we knew what we were talking about if nobody else knew. 
Is that a thing where you hear it and you can hear somebody rapping about it and you like you don't you don't know what you're talking about? Is that like an immediate thing? Yeah, absolutely. That's why people who like I, if you look at the earliest days of Jeezy, right? Mm. Uh, Jeezy was not as good as constructing songs as he is now, right? Years of experience making one of the best. Period. But in the earliest days, it was just the terms he used, the reference points. This was basically a lot of insider information. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why it was received, accepted, and it moved so quickly because it was like, I don't know who this boy is, but he talking about that shit. And this is not just regular corner boy type of shit. This is real big highway talk. You know what I'm saying? And many people hadn't really heard that in songs. And uh, so it just grew. It grew rapidly. And there were other people that spoke from that as well. The two chains of the world, you know what I'm saying? The TIs of the world eventually came along as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I understand that we were very early in talking about it, but we were far from the first people, mm. you know, talking about it. I would argue even records like Northside 5-2 by Schoolie D mm. is talking about that type of same type of thing. We're talking about white lines. You know, the message, all of that stuff was talking about what's happening in the immediate community and environment that people are living in. Pocket Full of Stones. What do you think it is about that particular song that has stood the test of time and is one of the most referenced lines and songs in all of hip hop? I couldn't really say what made it stand the test of time. I can only say that when I think about music for me like that, like, you know, Easy Does It you know, came on the other day, you know what I'm saying? I think music ties us to a certain time and period in our life. I think people that hear Pocket Full of Stones remember when this was a very new thing, right? This was talking about having a pocket full of stones and being on the corner selling dope and shit like that. There was not a lot of people making music about it, mm. right? And so doing it from that perspective, like hoping to get a broad audience was a backwards way of thinking at that time because mm-hmm. that was not a popular form of music. You know what I'm saying? That was not the biggest shit. They got on the tours and everything. It eventually got accepted and found its way, right? Ghetto Boys, you know, Scarface, uh, NWA, groups like that eventually found their place um, amongst their contemporaries at the time, but it was not like the quickest way from A to B if you was trying to get money, you know what I'm saying? But if you were trying to be real, right, and connect with people who are actually in those communities, in those little pockets of America where this shit was actually happening and these drugs were affecting people's lives for better or for worse, depending on, you know, the dynamic that you exist in. We were just trying to, you know, be genuine and be authentic so that when motherfuckers, you know, saw us, you know, we could actually be who they, who we said we were. Where'd the phrase uh, come from? Popular songs. Uh, Okay. So I'm going to say names. I don't want to say names, you know what I'm saying? But I had a really good friend of mine, we were riding around in my car. It was me and Pim and my friend. We were going to pick my friend's brother up. And so we're actually riding around. I had just got the CL Smooth, P Rock and CL Smooth album, the, the first album. And so this was the album where they play a song and then he would like loop a sample by itself and then it would go into another song. And so literally we were picking up the brother the brother got in the car and everybody like speaking, trying to dab him up. He's like, man, get the fuck out of here, man. I got a pocket full of stones, man. We got to get the fuck from around here. Right. And at the time, the loop that's in the song was actually playing on the Pete Rock and CL Smooth album. And so Pimp started saying, I got a pocket full of stones. Like, I'm t- this, this actually organically happened in the moment. And, you know, he went back. He never forgot it. And this was crazy because typically, um, Pimp was not impressed by the average hip hop album. I can only remember two albums specifically that I played in front of him that he wasn't immediately like, get that shit out of here. I don't want to hear that shit. And that was that album, which was produced by Pete Rock, who he had a lot of respect for. And then the other one was Slum Village. I played the Slum Village album for him. And he was like, I don't really know what these niggas talking about, but these beats is dope. The way he cut that record up is crazy. Mm-hmm. And that was Jay Dilla. You right, know, right. Mm-hmm. Pimp could recognize the, you know, the attention to detail and craftsmanship, even in music that he normally wouldn't even fuck with or gravitate to. But that was basically how that happened. That sample was playing from that album. That statement was made. 
and a classic is born. When you finally, you get in the studio, he's saying it, playing the loop. What is your reaction to hearing just that part before you can let your verse down? I mean, that shit was hard. You know what I'm saying? The, the drones, and then there's other elements. There's the horn sample in there. The Richard Pryor say, motherfucker. You know, it's a couple of other things that get added to it. But, I mean, that bitch was dope. You know, but Pimp made dope beats. You know, this was just one of many. We did kind of say exactly what we were wanting to say, and we did tie it up in a neat bow, you know, trying to show that this shit is cyclical. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Once you get into it, you probably, you're very hard to get out of it. You know what I'm saying? You don't, you're not positioning yourself to do something outside of this, so you end up stuck having to do it because you don't know how to do nothing else. What was the song construction process like for this album? Like, how do you get from point A to point B on, on making a song for this album back then? Well, I mean, again, for me, obviously, it was just me finding loops that mm-hmm. I thought people would have liked and, and trying to make a cool song out of it. The production was a lot of, you know, admiration and respect for musicians that had come before him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had a very clear vision of how he wanted this group to be heard and seen. And so a lot of that stuff was really, it was his baby. You know, many times I came in, the song was already done. If he didn't have a, a look for it, I would try to come up or a hook for it at that time. But, you know, a lot of times, like, man, people play some shit. Like, man, I came up with this shit. I think this shit would be dope. They, we say this on there. I'd be like, yeah, that shit dope. I can write to that. You know, mm-hmm. and it's very easy for us to construct the, the narrative because we didn't talk about the same shit. You know, we didn't talk about the same, same things, nor did we talk the same way, you know, about things. So there was always going to be an opposing view as to how to translate what we were talking about, which point of of the argument we stood on, which was never opposing. It was just mm. different alternative views on how to get from A to B. But regardless of the course we thought we were taking, where we started from was mutual, where we were trying to get to was mutual. You know, and I think the music, I think we were able to get a lot of that across with the music. But this was just about trying to make shit, you know, that we thought was jamming, was going to sound good in the trunk. You know, very subtle do, do you know you're making something that contributes to history or can even be, you know, classified as historic as you're doing it. You know what I'm saying? One of the things that stands out about this album is your voices. Talk about, you know, the vocal inflections that you're using on this album and sort of how that evolved. Well, you know, Pippin always had a, a higher pitch voice. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And he always thought it might sound crazy. So in his earliest days, he was always trying to, pitch it down, pitch mm-hmm. it down. You know what I'm saying? And my thing was when I do hear myself rap at a younger age, it's, it's very off putting because a lot of it's very rushed. You know what I'm saying? I'm, tr- I'm trying to make the lyrics as, you know, seem as aggressive as I am, you know, what I'm saying? for people, they can't see me. They're going to hear me before they see me. And there's a picture of me. And it's funny because people always tell me when they see me, I thought you'd be taller. You know what I'm saying? Because I've tried to make music that was imposing before I ever walked in the room and created that standard of like, hey, well, okay, it comes from B. You already know. I'm not taking no shit, right? So even if I'm not as tall or as big as you think I am, you still have to take into consideration where well, this dude don't take no shit, you know? So I don't, do I want to test it or, you know, that kind of thing. But we were really, you know, we were really very young trying to figure out who we are. We were still teenagers at this point. You know, we were not grown men, far from it, you know, not mature, anything like that. But we were very clear about how we wanted to be seen in this world. And I think the voices are a bit of a reflection of how we wanted to be seen and heard in this world. And eventually we figured out how to be a little bit more natural and still convey who we needed to convey, but without having to do any of that stuff when did you find that comfort and how did you find that comfort to be like this is actually how i want to sound and just be who you want to be i think we're riding dirty it was when we got to riding dirty we realized we're actually here right like we're mm. rappers we're putting out music there's no sophomore slump any of that shit so riding dirty was a point where we were like fuck all this other shit you know i'm tired of this with the red company of that we may never get videos and we don't give a fuck. So let's make sure we saying everything we really want to say. There is still no video for Riding Dirty. Mm, we're not right, right. commercial. That's another thing that we were sitting at home and the commercial for Riding Dirty just comes on TV. We had no idea 
when they filmed it, how they filmed it, we knew nothing of it. You know what I'm saying? And because of having those constant situations, we just wanted to make one album. And that was it. We didn't even take any money up front for Ride Dirty. We were just like, send us some equipment, give us a recording budget and creative control, and we don't want any money. And they agreed to it. And so that's why Ride Dirty to us is the first actual, you, you know, pure UGK album because it's the first time we got to fully express who we were sonically and verbally. And that's why it all came together like it did. Too Hard to Swallow is just us being good enough in the moment to not fuck up the opportunity. <laughs> so you mentioned some of the equipment that you got, and apparently Riding Dirty was the first album to use Pro Tools, right? Yeah, actually, you know, Joe, um, who actually brought that to the table, you know, Joe said that Pro Tools was actually still in beta when we used it. What was the recording equipment and all that stuff looking like for Too Hard to Swallow? Oh, that was Two Inch Real, which is, you know, a much more laborious process, a lot more time-consuming process. And again, as I said, studio time, real studio time, like in a full-service place, was very hard to find, hard to convince people to do with rap music, and it was very expensive. You know what I'm saying? It was a very tenuous process, to be very honest, you know? You know, the time it took to mix these records down, the time it took to lay vocals, because there was no, like, just hit the space bar and start again. You had records were very delicate, right? This tape that we recorded to was very delicate. So even the idea of how the tape would be rewound, how the tape would play, all of that type of stuff, took so much time, you know? So, you know, we tried to do as much as we could as possible beforehand, right? You know, practicing the rhymes with the music um, just to make sure we didn't waste time laying vocals. That type of thing. It was very, very laborious um, of a process that took a lot. It demanded a lot from both of us. But the time that it took for me to do what I needed to do in the studio was nothing compared to what it took for Pimp to do what he needed to do in the studio. That would create these beats. He would track the production out. He was being there. He was part of the mixing process, standing over, you know, trying to fly out to the mastering and all of that. And, you know, UGK was his bait. You know, he woke up and slept with it a lot more than I did. So I just tried to make sure I didn't fuck up his process and didn't complicate it. A lot of times you talk to, to rappers, especially who are using that laborious equipment stuff back then, they were feeling the need to do their albums and do their songs in one take. Was that sort of how it was for you? Yeah, and it just ended up becoming a thing for me because I never wanted to be the reason why we were in the studio longer than we needed to mm -hmm. be and maybe I would have to buy another hour. Right. That was okay. always the thing, right? We got this much time. We got to do everything we need to do in this time because if we got to book another hour or something like that, you know, who's going to pay for it? So you was mostly one take? Uh, most of it. You okay. know what I'm saying? There's actually versions of like cocaine and the back of the ride where it got to the point where we would literally be on the same mic doing each other's ad-libs okay. so that we didn't have to waste time loading up another track and going back and doing another ad-lib. But it never really sounded right. Mm. So we just ended up having to go back and do our own ad libs anyway. So, so with that said, is there something that when you listen back or when you think back on the album that sort of as as a perfectionist, as a, as an artist, something that drives you crazy when you go back and listen to it? All of it. <laughs> okay. All of it. Every single verse. Every single rhyme. Because it's so rushed. A lot of it is so rushed because I just want to get it in, get it done, and get out and be like time, right? Kind of a thing. It was like speed chess. Still chess, but a speed chess. I was born in Lafayette, Louisiana. One of the things about being from a place like Lafayette is that it's a real dope city right next to a really big popular city, right? And I think that's something that Port Arthur sort of shares in, in relationship to, you know, Houston. Like, what is that mentality that's like when you're in a town like that and you want to show up this big brother, big city and show them what you have and you, you're bringing that in your debut album? Just to be fair, you know, Lafayette is bigger than Port Arthur. Oh, got, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, y'all got a lot going on. But the dynamic still remains. Right. You, know? you just want to be able to say you could compete with the big city. You know, it's city mouse, country mouse kind of a thing, you know, for us. And we just wanted to show that we felt we could compete, right? We felt the music could stand up against anybody else. We were able to prove that throughout the course of our career. And it wasn't, we were trying to say we were better than other people. We were just... You know, we're as good, if not better, but we definitely as good as anybody else that's doing it. 
just give us a chance. Give me the platform. Give me the stage. I'll take it from now. And I think that we were able to accomplish that in a period of time quickly because at the time when we were introducing ourselves to Houston, there was a lot of separation in the city. The north side of Houston and the south side of Houston were not getting along. So north side artists couldn't really take advantage of the club scene on the south side and vice versa. Well, we weren't from Houston, but we could go to all the clubs. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So at a time where other people had to pick and choose where they could even go and present that shit, we went everywhere. We went mm-hmm. and we were from the hood, so going to a hood club wasn't shit. And so anybody that was willing to have us and pay them a little five hundred and seven fifty, because we weren't even getting no real money back then, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we showed up, but we even got that little bread. You know, North Side people loved it, South Side people loved it. We made a lot of traction, and um, and at that time because we were able to get booked at clubs that some people simply could not afford to get booked at, or you know, deal with some some beef or some crazy shit. Not saying that people were scared, people were just playing it smart. Do you remember the moment that Pimp C became your favorite rapper? Yeah, it was cocaine in the back of the ride. You know mm. what I'm saying? And like, <clears throat> cocaine in the back of the ride to me is the quintessential, and I very seldom talk about this, but cocaine in the back of the ride is designed for both of us to go off. Throughout the course of UGK's musical legacy, many songs were crafted for different reasons. Some songs are crafted that play to Pimp C's strengths. Some songs are crafted that play to my strengths, right? And as we got older and more experienced, we knew how to create those type of records. Cocaine in the Back of the Ride is Bum B and Pimp C at their finest. Both young, both raw, both hungry. You know what I'm saying? It's as equal a performance as you get. The closest thing to it, I think, for us might be maybe Piggy Rain or Murder. Even though Murder was correct created to be more of a Bun B record, Pimp C still holds its own. Even though Pinky Ring is created to be a Pimp C record, Bun B still holds its own. But they're great examples of the tandem. But I don't think anything shows the balance of who Bun B and Pimp C is better than that first song. That's why it's the first thing you hear. You know what I'm saying? Both on the independent version and I believe on the studio album. You know what I'm saying? At that time, we thought that was like the perfect representation of who we were. Speaking of the song Murder, we recently had Big Crit on the show, and I know you two have collaborated on some of his tracks and and other projects, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to ask you any question, and this is what he said. Check it out. Did he understand how his verse on Murder would change the perception of Southern lyricism? That's an amazing question. Not consciously, mm-hmm. right? I'll be very honest. I wasn't concerned about Southern rappers or Southern rap as a whole. I had been very adamant that I was not given enough opportunities to show people how good I could rap. And the problem was that Pimp was always bragging on me, right? Bump the best rapper, he's always that. And I tell him, quit giving me this slow ass shit. Because typically a lot of UK music is a very, you know, slower tempo and so murder was like okay this gonna be the one i was like i went out the night before and i was i had gotten very drunk i typically you know i'm very good at my liquor i've only been hung over maybe four times in my life and the day i murder i was hung over you know the beat played i wrote my rhyme and this was at skip holman's house in katie and Skip had a huge like SSL board, right? The first time I'd ever seen like a big full SSL board. And Skip was an engineer and he was a craftsman in terms of studio build outs and that kind of stuff. So where other studios may have a bunch of wires and things underneath the board, his was very clean. It was wrong for, I think maybe three chairs, maybe even four or whatever. Long story short, I went to sleep under the, the boot. Mm-hmm. It was the darkest place because then the room was lit up but the board is so big, it's the only place with a shadow, mm-hmm. right? With a little bit of darkness. So I crawled up under there uh, while they're tracking the beat out on the boards. That took about an hour and a half or so like that. Bill was like, okay, we're ready. And so he goes in and he does his verse first. He does it in maybe, I don't know, maybe three takes, four takes. I can't really remember. I know it didn't take long. And again, this is on Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. So you can actually punch in and that kind of a thing, right? And they wake me up as my, yeah, I, so I'm up, I'm waiting, I'm like half in, half out while Pimp's laying his vocals. 
That's why I can't remember exactly how many takes. And I go up, I go in the booth, and I'm tired. I'm like, I don't want to be in there all day. Mm. And so I do a take of it. I get all the way through at the end. And they're like, well, it's kind of sketchy towards the end of it. So let me just punch you in. I was like, no, I don't want to punch in. They're like, Bun, I know you don't want to be here. You fucked up, you tired, bro. Let me just punch you in, you'll be done. I'm like, I have to be able to do it in here so that when it's time to be at a show, I can do it out there. And I have to be able to do it under any condition. So if I can say this fucking rhyme all the way through <laughs> uh-huh. right now, I should be fine any given night to do this song. So the, the version of murder you hear from me is the second take. There was only two takes. Murder on two takes while hungover. That's like uh, the rap Jordan flu game or something. Right. Like <laughs> so, and so in retrospect, right, there's no way I could have thought what this song would have mm. meant to other people. I realize now it's a beacon. It sends a beacon out to artists saying that you can be equally lyrically proficient and Southern, right? You do not have to be one or the other. You can exist in both of those spaces simultaneously and be just as true to either one. You know what I'm saying? And so that now tells people, oh, in order to rap fast or to be very technical, I don't have to sound like that. I can still sound like me. Oh, shit. Now, well, let's go. You know what I'm saying? Let's really, really go. And you know, I'm not the one to sit back and pinpoint who did what, when, and where, or whatever. But I do know that before murder, motherfuckers were not like commonly trying to be that lyrical. You know what I'm saying? There were some people who were lyrical, but they couldn't really make commercial music. And there were people who could make commercial music who couldn't really be that lyrical. But I know that murder does, you know, for many people, signify like a turning point in Southern lyricism from a technical aspect, right? If adamantly trying to prove that I am a lyricist, I am a MC, I'm not just a rapper out here saying some shit, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. On the record saying whatever the fuck come, you know, I'm actually trying to execute wordplay at, at the highest level within this culture, within this genre of music. And I think with murder, I think I, I, think I hit it on the head. All right, we're gonna do quick questions. Rapid fire, three rapid fire questions. What's the other best thing Bun B cooks besides burgers? Hamburger helper. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just being honest, my hamburger helper spaghetti is like, it's A1. I grew up a, a Lashkey kid. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I prepared a lot of my meals by myself. And so okay. I used a lot of care and concern into it because I would have to maybe stretch it out for two meals. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I have a very particular palate. So I do flavor things differently like, you know, I tried to break up the process and do things the way I would want them to do. So mm. if you eat my ramen, you would say, okay, well, I've eaten ramen before, but I didn't know you could make ramen like that. It's still this, at the end of the day, you still get what you're trying to get in the bowl, but it's just the process. And then obviously I'm not the best person that can make the burger. I am far from being the best chef in the house. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, but I do know good food when I eat it. And that's, that's a, a primary part of why I married the woman I married. All right. Cause she can burn like heavy. Like we never have to, we eat out because we want to, never because we have to. What is the best Southern posse cut of all time? Bring it on, ghetto boys. Bring it on is like the prime of, this is the prime of Rap-A-Lot. Rap-A-Lot mm-hmm. has a full roster of artists embodying so many different aspects of hip hop, not just Houston, but many of them do represent Houston. Um, and this is when like Big Mellow is on top. I mean, just Scarface comes in. I mean, you listen to it, man. There's so many different artists going on it. The only thing I think that's better than that is maybe one nine hundred dollar crook, which seeds one nine hundred hustler um, by Rockefeller is basically their version of that. If you go back and listen to one nine hundred dollar crook, that's a crazy song, but it's not necessarily a posse cut. It's a song with several artists on it. But just when we think posse cuts, we rapper and rapper and rapper and rapper. It's hard to beat a lot of those soldier posse cuts, right? I would definitely say bring it on by the ghetto boys. And it's a good six minutes long, at least. What's one song from another artist that you wish was yours? Having Things by Big Mike. Having Things is one of the first features, like beats and hooks that Pimp sells. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not around when this transaction happened, <laughs> uh-huh. right? So when I hear the song, and Mike already has it, he's already recorded it and everything. I hear the song, I get in my field. Because if I would have been there, ain't no way that would have left the team. Having things is as close to a UGK record that you can have without Bun B and Pimp C actually rapping on the record. Do I think I would have? It would have been what Big Mike eventually made it. No, but that beating that hook was gonna go. Mm. Period. Regardless, I think of anybody rapping on it, that bitch was gonna go. The hook was solid. The track was a one. From that point on, we created a veto system <laughs> where, uh-huh. before he gave away a beat or a hook or something like that, he he had to run it sp- specifically the beat. He had mm. to run it by me and make sure I didn't want it for UGK. And we mm. kept that up for many years until I realized this boy could make hits all day and I don't have to keep nothing as if he can He can make this shit all day. And at that point, I stopped giving a damn because the reality is that he's making these records for specific people. Mm-hmm. Like he's a craftsman. He's not just sending people a CD of beats and you pick something. He actually always went in the studio with people, talked to them, listened to what they had already done and created something specifically for them. But I was so caught up, boy, by how jamming that bitch was. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, he can't be giving away this kind of shit. <laughs> Who knows how many of these kind of hits we could, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, but that's the one wreck and having things by Big Mike. Anything else you'd like to discuss about Too Hard to Swallow before I let you go? You know, the things that I look at as flaws, right, in retrospect, you know, the things that I thought could have been done better and all of that, you know, hindsight is, it's it's always twenty twenty, but I will say this: in my rawest form, like the rawest version of me, like as a human being, as an artist, I was still seen and heard. And that version of me, which I look at, you know, at the present time, and not being the best version of me, and I still look back at it as, you know, looking at my life in totality up to where I'm at right now, is definitely not the best version of me. Right. My life is more dependent on that version of me than any other point, because that's the point of me that said, fuck it and jumped off the cliff. You know what I'm saying? And without that, you know, living a life of, you know, being reserved and being too cautious and being anxious and letting these other emotions really take me away from what it is I really want to do and who I really want to be. You know, even without knowing whether or not he could make it, that version of me still jumped off the cliff. And I'm forever grateful to him. I really am. You did your shit. The legendary Bun B. Thank you for joining us talking about Too Hard to Swallow. Thank you so much for being here, my man. No, thank you, my guy. Appreciate y'all. Absolutely. That's it for today. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. And this is Rap Story. See you next time. This podcast is produced by Podville Media for Anscape, a black-led media platform dedicated to creating highlighting and uplifting diverse black stories Anscape, where blackness is infinite dina morrison is the series producer our production team Brittany danielle rob spiewak lenika belfield martin ethan sands and eli nellis the series was edited by stephen williams kelsey johnson and rob ford executive producers steve reese elizabeth elson and oscar zabayos Raina Kelly is Anscape's Vice President and Editor-in-Chief. David Oku created the original artwork for the series. Special thanks to Tracy Smith, Mike Shahade, Rami Mogadam, Katie Lawson, Beth Stoikov, Anna Grambling, Ashley Melfi, John Gotti, Kelly Evans, Ryan Broadhead, and Kevin Wilson. And I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. Thank you for listening.